out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. And, um, well, let's face it, who doesn't? So this week it's going to be the turn of um, one half or a member of Spaceman 3 because I spoke to Peter Kemba very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and um, all that malarkey. So anyway, this is it. He's obviously worked with, uh, well, as in Spaceman 3 and has gone on to do Sonic Boom and Spectrum and lots of other stuff. Now, this interview has been broken up into two parts. This is going to be part one. Part two might come out tomorrow. Um, it's a technical issue to do with Zoom. So anyway, you don't need to know about that. It's very long and I'm tempted to edit it, but then I'm tempted not to bother. So if you want to hear just two people having a chat about life, fill your boots. Um, and we start really talking a lot about Adam Curtis and the latest series that Adam Curtis has uh, just been or has just kind of um, had available on iPlayer with the BBC. So you might wonder what all that is about. But anyway, it's kind of interesting and it leads into the rest of the interview. So if you want to hear two people just having a long chat about life, it's just tune in. Um, Also, the second part will feature a lot more about music. But the first part is just me and Peter talking. And um, yes, if you want to hear it, fine. If you don't, don't bother. That's what I say. Anyway... Peter, it's over to you. Struggling on this one now. Unfortunately, as bad as it is, um, I think it's probably, I don't think any big change is going to come in our society and in the way that we interact with this planet. You know, some horrible wake-up call like this, and I think it's making people think about it and realise that a lot of the models that we've relied on, that political models, it didn't, trust me, it didn't take COVID to tell me this, but it's illustrated to a lot of people. These dudes have not got a fucking clue and they do not give a shit. Mm. They're lining their own pockets, their buddies, and that's it. On different levels, some worse than others, but that's essentially the model that we have. Professional politicians. Yes, and um, also, have you been watching that Adam Curtis series that's just come out. Um, uh, I, I, I do like his uh, his docs. I, I started, <laughs> I fell asleep halfway through. They're long, aren't they? <laughs> well, but, this, um, this latest one is a six-parter, and I've done, I think I've done the first four or five, and um, I kind of need to watch them all again, but make notes and then go and research it, because there's lots of bits on China that I didn't really know about, and then there's a, the Iraq and all the wars there and all the history of Africa and then Russia and America. So um, it is a bit like being in a very intense lecture where he kind of finds these threads and just kind of pulls and pulls them, goes down his rabbit walk. Awesome. I, I love the Mayfair set that he did as well. I thought that was really awesome. Yeah, and it's um, and and this one, I, I don't know if it's going to be in it, but I was reading some of his blogs that he's done in the last five years, which are probably his notes for this series. And he was talking a lot about the New Age movement and and the folk movement, where we we sort of hark back in Britain to this idea of Arcadia, you know, this kind of, but it's a complete myth. Arcadia never really existed, but people have created this, the work of Cecil Sharp, and he found all these folk music and folk dance, and it's almost like, oh, this is what people used to do, and it's like, no, they didn't. But yeah, we know, spurious nonsense. 
it's um, Victorians, the kings of it, right? They loved it. They, they loved to try and reinvent some medieval past for themselves. And, you know, it does. Knights of the Round Table and all this nonsense, you know. It's, uh, I mean, it, it's lovely in some ways, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's nonsense. Of course it is. But there's a lot of nonsense that we, you know, we, we think we invented the fucking world. We think that they didn't know in the past. They were stupid. They didn't, you know, we, we've been round and round in these cycles. And my personal belief of what the collapse of a lot of civilizations, and particularly that we find in the Americas and places, Teotihuacan and places like that, they, they just don't know what fucking happened to the people. But it's clearly something like this, a, a pandemic, right? I mean, they've been these, um, we've had these things going out through history, uh, well, always associated with collapse of civilization as well, apparently. Yes, um, well, no. It's so, um, but I do, yeah, I do, I do really recommend the latest uh, Adam Curtis, if you haven't. Yes, I will, I will, I will tune back in. As I say, I was, I'd been in the studio all day and I started watching it at night with my wife and she got to halfway through the second one, but I fell asleep. <laughs> I, felt, um, I felt he was covering some ground that he'd covered in some of his other documentaries. Some of it was, uh, I, I couldn't quite put my, I couldn't quite place where I, I knew some of that information from, but, um, you know, he's, I, he's I, I love the dude because I think he's really pointing out to people, uh, you know, everything which I believe that we're just being fucked over by people in the name of the fast fucking buck and we're fast trashing the planet to a point where it will be, you know, I, I don't even know if I want to call us a civilization at this point, uh, kind of an uncivilization the way we, we treat each other and treat humans and uh, the nonsense that people do and the nonsense they don't do. Um, yes. Well, I think the bits that he's done before, and I remember he did a lot on, on Africa and the Congo and the, and the way that we messed around with these different tribes who used to live quite harmoniously. And then we came in and the Belgians and they come, kind of fucked it all up really. And then went, oh dear, we're gonna leave now that you've kind of created this hot, you know, this genocide. Um, sorry about that. Um, oh, yeah, it's toxic. I mean, all, all, all um, what's the word for it? Empire, dominions, I mean, you know, this nonsense about the commonwealth. It's like, yeah, it's your common and it's gonna be our fucking wealth. Hey, don't think you're going to come from Jamaica or India and live in England and anyone's going to be fucking happy about it. I mean, you know, it's just insane. The whole sovereign situation is, uh, until we can get past that where people start drawing lines on bits of land and on maps and saying, if you want to cross here, you, you need to be one of us special people. We're doomed, you know, it's that we're all born on the same fucking planet. We should all have equal rights. You're on this planet. You should have equal rights to be fucking anywhere. If you can sustain yourself there, uh, it's, it's all nonsense. All this, you know, the sovereign domain thing. I know it was one of Buckminster Fuller's big uh, bugbears. This is where so much toxicity was pumped into uh pumped into us and into our mindset and you know this there's not enough to go around so either grab it for yourself or someone else will grab it you know this really horrible vibe that a lot of people it's not even they intentionally do it but they're just it's you know it's, it's dogmatically passed on from generation to generation and the damage again of things like the catholic church and religion in general often is 
toxic and as soon as you start saying my religion is the only religion it's the one god you're absolutely fucking nuts aren't you it's absolutely insane to me the things that have been done in the name of religion and the catholic church might be able to take the biggest bow here but yeah. just pure toxicity they've indoctrinated and people now repeat it and, and just dogmatically say, oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic. It's like, you don't even fucking, you've never even thought about it, but your parents say they were Catholic. So you say you're Catholic. It's like, really, that way we're fucking at. And then you're going to start repeating the nonsense that they repeat, that contraception and, um, you know, uh, God's work. I mean, you know, uh, Jesus Christ. We only kind of got to where we, we got to where we are, really, in spite of the Catholic Church, right? Because yes. the knowledge was, they totally just tried to shut everything down. It's yeah. insane, really. It is weird. It was weird. I know we keep, we, me and my partner keep talking about this series and sort of, you know, having, there's things that have happened or people we've known who you kind of real you sort of, after watching the Adam Curtis thing, look back and think, you know, people who came from quite middle class backgrounds went into the kind of, this is in my life, into the hippie world, but then have now, with age have gone back to their kind of almost roots, but they they feel annoyed with the left and the sort of that movement. And they're kind of not very happy with the right where they came from with this privileged background. So there's certain individuals in my life that I found quite interesting. Well, not interesting because I try to avoid them, but I kind of try to understand why they, they have become so bitter about various things and wondering why that is the case. And I think after watching the Adam Curtis, it's a bit like they, they went to this kind of private school. They had, they had the idea that they were going to be privileged, but that didn't sort of really work out. So they went in, smoked some dope, went to hippie festivals in the 70s and 80s, and then have kind of reacted back against that into the world that is the Telegraph and the Daily Mail. But they're still, they're uncomfortable with both groups and they're kind of just bitter people if you meet them now but I kind of realized watching Adam Curtis kind of a bit more about why they do feel so annoyed because they you know they don't feel like they belong really yeah well um yeah I don't, I don't know if I know many of those type folks but unfortunately I mean some people I mean those people the the, the that you're describing, most of them had access to psychedelic drugs and probably did psychedelic drugs, even if it was maybe just sort of buzzing on mushrooms. But psychedelic drugs inform people in such a awesome way sometimes. It's, um, you know, I, I've learned more in my life through psychedelic drugs than I ever learned at school, no question and more useful stuff and, and stuff that, that's, that's um, sort of real, you know. I mean, when I was at school, we used to have books of logarithm tables and they'd teach you quadratic equations. I've never needed the use of a quadratic equation. And, you know, I'm not saying that, that, that it's not something that doesn't have its use, but when they don't teach people the basic things about how we should interact with our planet, how we're meant to be living symbiotically with everything here, how we're a product actually of plants and we only evolve because of plants. If people understand these things, they'll find it very hard to toxify their environment. If they truly realize what a symbiotic magical relationship we have. And I think, I think one of the great examples of what psychedelics can do is if you look at the Beatles, I mean, the, 
how they changed like, through psychedelic drugs, pretty much all of them, um, particularly John Lennon and George Harrison. And I think it really, it really tuned them in to, to seeing that they'd been part of something that was, you know, fucking crazy ass joke, really. Not their music, but just the industry around it and the, the world that they were sort of being raced through to make money. And it's interesting, I think psychedelic drugs or acid came along at the right time for them. And they came out of it on the other side with this really benign, wonderful, spiritual, and some revolutionary stuff and some, you know, authority questioning stuff, which I think is always really important. Mm. And it, it just, it's like night and day. Their music as well, of course, their music from Magical Mystery Tour, it's just like, they just invented, they, they, they just like doubled the possibility of music in that record. It was uh, insane, insane, incredibly brave. And, uh, but I think it's a good illustration of what psychedelics can do for people sometimes. So I don't know why these people, I guess it was the thing with the, the OG hippies, right? Is that a lot of them became the breadheads of the 80s and Thatcher's children. I, I don't know how that happens, how, how people move like that. But, um, Yes, it's a bit strange. So look, because just it's always curious because I'm I was born sixty four, so I'm now in my mid fifties. So my musical growing period was kind of that very early seventies. What was your kind of formative moments? Did did were you kind of at that stage? Because you mentioned Beatles. Did you watch those Beatles films, and and get kind of slightly excited and curious? But then, you know. I just wonder what your parents were listening to on that. Well, when I was a kid, I was really into like, you know, the Beatles, the pure pop, I want to hold your hand kind of Beatles. And uh, I think it was only much later on that I started to like the, the uh, Magical Mystery Tour stuff and the things, let's say, let's say post-Revolver. And then over the years, I've sort of just really got more and more into it. It's, it's funny, for some reason, I was never really the Beatles dude. Yeah, I remember watching all the films and all the rest of that. But, um, yeah, uh, my formative, my, the music, a lot of the stuff came from my parents. It was things like Buddy Holly and, um, you know, rock and roll stuff like that was really uh, kinks. Um, Beach Boys, you know, those sort of things. The Beatles, they had those records. So were, you, were your parents quite hip and on the case then in that, you know, in, in sort They of were young, so they were fairly hip, but they just, uh, I was born in 65, my brother was born in 63, and they were just before that sort of, um, let's call it the hippie era, people were, were uh, doing more, um, what's the word? Um, people were exploring culture and exploring things in a, uh, a really interesting way and they were they were just too old for that I suppose but they were you know they went to art college they were they were pretty hip you know. they were they sounded much more bohemian than my parents who were far more working you know, they were Thatcherite conservative you know you know because well 
most people, a lot of people's politics seems to be based on how much tax they think they should be paying, right? And mm -hmm. I, I always think that's one of the major overriding things for conservatives, particularly. And, and I have to tell you, my parents were right up there. <laughs> <laughs> they're yes. a little bit embarrassing they're, they're also brexiters as well while we're talking about it <laughs> it's a sore point i can tell you <laughs> yeah that's um yeah that's a tricky one isn't it? that's one to um try and avoid over the christmas meal yeah. isn't it really um yes so then yeah. you know during that early 70s period where the, the kind of glam period and and you know we were watching top of the pops and listen to the top 20 on a sunday evening mm -hmm. you know there were things like sweet and slade and um, and alice cooper's spills out did did that start to kind of get you excited and slightly aroused I love those dudes mostly i, I like t-rex is the only one who i ever really i liked his songs but um I mean, I thought they was goofy as fuck. Elton John, a lot of them. I mean, I just couldn't really bear it, I have to tell you. I thought, it, I thought it was horrible. I like it more now than I did then. I mean, some of that glam stuff is sweet and stuff. Blockbuster. Yeah, there's, there's some really awesome stuff. And the production on the records is really uh, awesome as well. That sort of bubblegummy glam sort of production. But... Um, it wasn't my thing. I sort of hated music because of that at the time. Yeah, oh, right. This is exciting. So, only about when I was about eleven, where I started really much liking music, and it was things like Buddy Holly and things I heard through my parents, Sam Cooke, stuff like that. Things I still, I have a, I have a. My mum gave me recently uh, a record sleeve I'd made for Buddy Holly and the Crickets uh, album that obviously lost its sleeve. And I must have made when I was like 11, so hand-painted. And it's always been with me, that music. I still love it. And I still love listening to it. And, you know, there's, you know, every day. And uh, it all, all is raining in my heart. And, you know. Yes. Well, I know that, because um, I, I must admit, my first love was David Bowie. And frankly, my first single was... Space Oddity and Elmer's um, Changes One. But so yeah. Bowie stayed with me most of my life, or all of my life, really. Um, and also I loved Lemmy as well. And they were both the same age. And whenever they got asked about, you know, their early musical fate, you know, heroes, they would both would say Little Richard and then the work of people like Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holiday, Holly. Yeah. And, you know, well, yeah. those ones. So, so it's interesting that you've, you've also got that kind of a slightly similar sort of musical heritage. Yeah. Yeah, Bowie. I, I I probably I didn't really get into Bowie until things like um, Sound and Vision. That was the first record I remember hearing by Bowie and going, something special about that song. Something really just sort of like was transportative and just sort of took you to some really such a really beautiful riff and the really magical sounding. And I think that that era, the heroes era, was um, my favourite. That's when I really started to get into Bowie. Yes, Joe the Lion, classic song. So, did you? I mean, because I was a bit too young for punk. Did that sort of all come into your consciousness at that period? I was lucky. I had brothers two years older than me, and also being at. Um, being at a private school, a boarding school, I was in a house with 60 other kids, and I want to say maybe 20 or 30 of them had a hi-fi in their little studies. 
and you know these are kids from wealthy backgrounds they had records you know so um you were surrounded by music and some of the kids were hit they'd like they'd work at the virgin distribution store in the holidays to make money and get cheap records and so they'd, you'd hear really interesting things and you'd hear everything because you had enough kids that you'd get the spread of you know metal and uh, pop and classic rock and uh, new wave and yeah my brother um was you know I, I was 13 in 78 but he was 15 in 78 so he was just the perfect age for it i mean we both were really i feel that music a lot of it is really built for that sort of hormonal <laughs> element of your life yes uh, I have records from that era that I still listen to a lot. There's a compilation that I, I love to bits called That Summer that was the soundtrack to some lame film that had, that had the most awesome new wave soundtrack. And uh, I, uh, I still listen to it. I still love all that stuff, Teenage Kicks and Another Girl, Another Planet, and uh, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, and Rockaway Beach, and there's so many classic records from 77 and 78. It's just stunning, the amount of great. I wish we had another period like that. I mean, loads of the bands as well only had one really great song off them, or a few, you know, three or yes. four. I remember, I remember in the 80s, there was that uh, compilation by... Um, was it called Street Sounds, where you know they went up to that volume fifteen? Morgan Khan put it together, and it was fantastic because he just you know most of those rap bands just had one great song, and yeah. occasionally you'd make a mistake and buy the album of that band and then think, oh, actually most of it's yeah. terrible apart from that one song on, you know, I don't know, Electro Volume Six or something like that. So when did yeah. you start thinking about actually being in a band and and sort of learning an instrument? Mm. I'm not sure I ever really learned an instrument, I have to tell you. I'm still heading in that direction. <laughs> um, when did I? Well, I guess I was, I, it was around that time, probably inspired by, the first, the first band that I wanted to be in was Diva. I, I, you know, when I was a kid, I just thought they were the most amazing, the Are We Not Men, We Are Devo era, Satisfaction and Mongoloid and Gut Feeling and, Although I just thought they were the most, I just loved the whole combination of craziness, but really delivered in a Oh, you've gone slightly silent, silent there. Is your connection still working? Oh. Oh, I can't hear you. That's not a panic. I'm panicking. Pete? Did it? Did it? Oh, wait a minute. Two in the meeting. Admit, one waiting. Did it? Hmm. Pete? Pete? Oh, blimey, there's two Pete's. Pete, are you still there? We got to Devo. And then it stopped. Oh. Shit. What happened? I'm sweating. 
Oh, Pete, you've gone, you've gone quiet. You have to Devo. Wait a minute. Do 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 do. Um, pin chat chat. Don't do. Right there, you go. Blimey. That's good. I've got yes. You've got multiple in. Got multiple. Um, invites. Well, have we got? Um, that's fine. <laughs> it's like I don't know. There's two Pete's now, but you're, you're the same person, so that's fine. I've never, I've never come across that before. But that's the world of sort of um, Zoom meetings, wow. now, isn't it? I like. Yeah. I wish. I wish I'd made that happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you were just talking about diva, Devo, and um, satisfaction. So then, yeah. So then, you know, because because I was, you know, like. Uh, a bit of an obsessed indie kid. So uh, to be honest, in the 70s, I was very influenced by my brother who was seven years old and he was into prog rock of like, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Party, James Harvest, hated punk, absolutely hated the indie scene. And I was quite influenced by him. So then that kind of had a major moment. But then in the 80s, one starts to get a little bit more independent, well, vaguely. Um, and uh, yes, then then sort of discovering things like John Peel, well, not discovering, but sort of suddenly coming across John Peel and hearing... I am the fly by wire and people like that. So then as the eighties progressed, how was, how was your musical moment? Well, John Peel was the thing for me as well, listening to John Peel at night in bed. Um, but again, when I was at school, I mean, like there were loads of kids who had record players, there were loads of kids that had guitars. And the house I was in was, um, had a rehearsal room in it. For some reason, that house had decided that they were going to turn part of their massive cellar into a space for bands to, to play. So bands from the school would all come to that different, the 10 different houses or what have you would all come there. And a lot of them would leave their gear there as well. Right. So, um, and I remember a dude called Frank Dooley, who was a couple of years older than me, had an acoustic guitar. And he showed me first formative sort of bar chordy stuff and how to play um, things like You Really Got Me or kink songs all, all day and all the night. Uh, just really simple stuff. And I just started messing around and sort of found I sort of, uh, I found because I can't bend my fingers beyond straight, where most, most good guitarists, their finger will bend the other direction in the same way as I can bend it in that direction, yeah. which makes it a lot easier to, um, it's like just a genetic thing. Some people can do it, some can't. But if you can do it, it's much easier to play guitar and to form nice chords and stuff. And I always had trouble with that. So I started sort of trying to create my own little bastard style. Um, which I liked and just kept rolling with it. So yes, and that's um. So that's, that's the because I haven't done this show for a long time now. There were so many bands in the eighties. I didn't realise that. I should have done because you know I was an obsessive indie kid. But um, but you know that early period, a lot of the people just kind of there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of people went into that world that was you know claiming unemployment benefit or job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. And in that one year, you know, especially if you're on enterprise allowance, you know, just said, oh, I'm a musician and then getting the great John Peel, you know, play and then a John Peel session. So how did your sort of musical moment start to develop at that stage? Um, well, I guess it was when I left school 
at 16 and I wanted to go to art school. Um, or at least I thought I did. Um, and I guess I wanted to go to art school because in the UK, of course, it's, it's the, the, the thing they do more at art school than art is form bands, right? <laughs> I mean, there's hardly, there's hardly a great band from a British great band ever that didn't have members that went to art school, right? I, I mean, you know, the, all of them. Yes. So, um, so I must have had my mind sort of set on that in a way and then surprise surprise there are other people there who had exactly the same mindset and uh, Jason Pierce was that dude he was in my art class and um, I'm pretty sure he was there for the same reason as me. <laughs> well absolutely and also we got grants in those days didn't you and how you know. Not, not easily, and not if you were living at home and for a local uh, art college, you know. I, I don't know if it was, I guess it was technically, I don't know if they didn't call it a polytechnic, the rugby art college, but it was associated with, a, you know, a, you know, whatever they call those places these days, they still call them polytechnics. I know, so I think po like, polytechnic. I think if you use the word polytechnic, it does it does kind of put us in into an age bracket that young people would have no idea what we're talking about. Because <laughs> suddenly, Google it. Google it. yeah, someone suddenly said, "No, you're all universities. Don't worry." So polytechnic is one of those terms that I think, um, yeah, you think, oh, you're so eighties. But yes, so then, then, oh, <laughs> yes, this is true. So were you, because on the musical front, you know, the, there was the alternative scene had sort of, sort of had that kind of like the post-punk movement. Well, there wasn't a movement, but there were those bands who were quite scratchy. And then as the sort of 83 had progressed, there was the Smiths. And that was kind of like a great moment in musical history. Well, a musical chapter. But there was that kind of alternative kind of scene that was kind of very, kind of, it, you could feel it, couldn't you? Almost pulsing in the airwaves. There's this kind of like... Yeah. There was a lot of unemployment, you know, obviously we'd had sort of like, um, yeah, the Falkland War, then we had the miners' strike, then Red yeah, Wedge, and there was this angsty stuff. And on the other side, there was this kind of the shiny top of the pops world of Trevor Horn production sounds and, you know, that kind of, you know, drum kind of percussion, which yeah. was quite raw and lots of balloons on top of the pops. I always remember now when you ever see top of the pops at that time, balloons were very big. So were you, were you on a mission to get into... Uh, um, yes, to sort of think, right, we, we, have, we, we know where we can go with this. This is it, Top, you know, John Peel. Yeah, I mean, thank God for John Peel, even though he, he, I, I had a, uh, a mixed relationship with the dude because he, he sort of, he, I don't know why, he must have been having a bad day. It's, when people hear this story or people who heard it on the radio, it was really out of character for him. But he, um, he played a 17, 18 minute Spaceman 3 track, but in two minute sections with other bands in between, which of course the, 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 you know, the piece only works because of the way it progresses. And he sort of made mocking, slightly mocking uh, remarks about it. And uh, so I, 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 I wrote to him, uh, as you could do in those days, 
care of the BBC and uh, told him that don't bother to you, don't bother playing our records if that's you. Yeah, yeah. A, go fuck yourself, and B, please don't, don't fucking, you're letting yourself down, mate. What, what the fuck are you doing? And he always came up with different stories over the years about it. But he did, he did say once in an interview that I was the only person he'd ever written to to tell him to go fuck himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite nice. You know, at least he remembers it. He probably realises, because he, you know, I remember in the 70s, he, I think he played one side of Tubular Bells. From... Afterwards. He, I think he was having it, it's, you know, it's, it's so un-John Peel, but um, I think he was, he was just a bit cranky that day. Yeah. So, yeah. So then, I mean, when when you started playing live at various shows, did you start to feel that there was kind of a, a kind of an energy for the with the band and and the dynamics between you? The first time that we ever uh, played as a band, four people, initially me and Jason just used to you know knock around and stuff, and first time we tried it. You know, all our friends were all kind of in the same boat. No, no one was really a musician. Uh, or they were starting to play an instrument just for this, like Pete Bain, the bass man. I don't think he'd ever really played bass much. Um, uh, he he might have done actually in some sort of like punky kind of thing with some friends, but I mean, we were all people who had no musical. Uh, Jason by far was the most musical of us all. Um, in a traditional sense, and but the first time we played together, it was just like we were we, we knew that something strange was happening, and it was really good. And we just, you know, added almost nothing because uh, some of the songs initially were what sort of a little bit known as the Spaceman Three sound, you know, no chord changes, etc., or minimal chord changes. But we also early on used to do some more sort of crampsy kind of stuff. It was sort of Iggy Pop meets the cramps a little bit. And I think there was a certain point when we realized that we had some stuff that was really quite unique and didn't really stand like anyone, you know, you could put your finger on straight away, although it was clearly influenced by the Stooges and the Golden Underground, you know, all sorts of different things a lot of uh, psych stuff, garage stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, it just, I, we, I think there was a certain point when it was clear that some of the stuff was just like, I don't know, it's a bit like if you hear that early Joy Division stuff before they were, I think it's, is it before, it's, if, it might be when they were called Warsaw or whatever they were called. And they're sort of like a sort of punky band and you can hear it's Joy Division, but it just hasn't, it's, it's just something they sound like, a, um, you know, a sort of also ran alongside Slaughter and the Dogs or something, you know, some sort of second rate, more or less. It's uh, interesting. I always remember it was it Stephen Morris, the drummer, saying that when they first heard the sort of recordings that Martin Hannett did, they were a bit disappointed with the sound. But obviously, Martin Hannett had the kind of wherewithal to sort of realise what they produced. You know, what he was doing was making them quite unique, rather than just like a thousand yeah. other bands, really. 
but sometimes when I, and I remember saying this to Beach House, and it's like my job working with you is you you have to look at what you're doing very much in the here and now and the micro detail. But I'm I'm meant to be trying to bring the future to this. I'm trying to I'm trying to bring something that's future proofed, not not about the here and now and about zeitgeist and all that. Something that is has a, a consistency and a solidity that that the future will appreciate as much as the present. And I think uh, with Martin Hannett, you can, you can safely say that's very true, right? I mean, the future-proofed and enjoy the vision. More people probably listen to Joy Division now than they ever did, right? Yes, well, absolutely. And then, I mean, at that stage, we'd started having bands like Jesus and the Mary Chain, and there was early creation yeah. records and various kind of a lot of indie gigs so, so there was definitely the page was turning because it's interesting because I, I did an interview with Nick Kent from you know the NME journalist and he was saying when he first started in 73 time with friends before coming part of the NME he said everyone else at various mu news, music papers were were still waiting for the Beatles to reform and Sid Barrett to sort of get himself together to go back to Pink Floyd but he Nick realized that actually that was that was kind of gone dude you know they, these that that ship has sailed even though it was only two or three years down the line so obviously you know you realize how I'm sure a lot of these hippie friends didn't like it that he hanging out with the sex pistols and that he was <laughs> hanging out with these punk up starts right yes which did things which ended very, things were very um tribal back then right you weren't allowed to like rock and roll and punk you weren't meant to, you were like like the beatles and the sex pistols right all this sort of like weird tribalism that was such crazy nonsense but yes it was very tribal because i remember sort of doing various interviews with uh, members of the the rock cats who were rockabilly band and they said they just spent a lot of time being chased down the road by various other other tribes you know you sort of have yeah. to learn how to sprint very quickly to avoid a gang of people beating you up and you thought god they were the good old days weren't they <laughs> it was the same it was it was the same for me in the town uh that i was from rugby and it was the what, what we used to refer to as the casuals or the smoothies the football dudes they they didn't like what well, i guess indie kids weren't a thing yet but i guess we were proto indie kids and that they could recognize in a mile off. And I tell you, we've got into some scrapes. I've been chased many times by dudes like that. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, there, yes. I, there was one show where uh, the band got, uh, I wasn't actually, I didn't get jumped, but the other dudes got jumped on the way home by a load of people. <laughs> yes, these things happen. MDMA, that changed culture and society a lot and people stopped going out and looking for fights so much i feel it used to be a big thing the you know, saturday nights all right for fighting sort of vibe well yes absolutely yes to, to quote um dear old um john lennon so look as, as the uh, <laughs> no not john lennon elton john jesus <laughs> elton john <laughs> Yes, I know. He was all back, peace and love. So then as the mid 80s, I mean, you know, because I was, you know, with I, just, I don't know if you came across the wonderful book that was Neil Taylor's. You're probably not you're not really into the C86 world, are you? And, 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 he, and he mentions a lot about all the little indie clubs and all the kind of like venues around the country and stuff like that. Did you yeah. 
And, and the good thing about that period was that you had these kind of gatekeepers, you know, you had three music papers, you had John Peel, that if he, if he played your song properly, and then you had every city and town had an indie night, didn't they, on a, mostly at the beginning of yeah. the week. So you did have this yeah. kind of access to be able to sort of start to move around the country and play in front of, you know, people who didn't know you. Yeah, hold on, I've got to attach some power or we're going to go yeah do you have i bet you would like this book i think we're out of sync here so i hope you can see this but um do you know that a scene in between book yes i do i was looking at his other one which i've got downstairs which is the one about um have you got any of his other books there's one where he's got no. all about the different fashions of different the youth movements no that's yeah, that's cool. I like that stuff. God, it's amazing. I wish I had it just next to me because you would be. Yeah, I can't. I could have a look actually. I'll send you a link yeah. because um, yeah, he's done about three or four, which have been fantastic. We're talking about Sam Neil, aren't we? So um, it's all good. But yes, yeah, so, so as as the eighties progressed and we'd had that kind of suddenly that you know the youth of the time were getting very angsty and it was getting very red wedge, wasn't it? At this point, were you also because obviously. From your background and stuff were you getting slightly polit politically angsty with the uh, you know joining the swp and and getting very yes wanting to bring down the government no i i, I could smell bullshit already by that age <laughs> i i uh i mean i i mean i i i don't think it's political to be against nuclear weapons or to be against killing fucking whales or some of the topics at that time for me that's not political that's just common fucking sense um but no there was i i felt no compunction to uh ally my align myself behind any uh political party um no yes but as but then you you know your first album, you know, sort of going into the studio. You worked with Pat Fish, didn't you, at that stage, The Jazz Butcher. What was yeah. that? Was that a good experience? Oh, he's awesome. He's fucking awesome. I mean, uh, Pat Fish, without, without uh, Pat Fish, no one would have ever heard Spaceman 3, I have to tell you, because he was, he had a position of, um, His band was a pretty successful indie band, and um, it was. Uh, he came to a show, and he came to see the band who was who we were playing with. Uh, uh, I think it was the Cogs of Time, uh, and he really liked us. And he was, he was just. He said, you know, he was just very helpful um, in a in a roundabout way. Yes. Were you, I mean, at that stage, because because there was like, obviously the jingly jangly sound of the 80s was quite big, wasn't it? You know, people had been influenced by orange juice. There was, as I mentioned, the Smiths, the, you know, and then there was the go-betweens, the Triffids and all that kind of stuff. So you, you were slightly outside of that world, but still part of that kind of independent scene, weren't you? Uh, I was right outside that world, I have to tell you. I... I didn't hate Orange Juice. I didn't hate The Smiths. The Smiths have one song that I like. The How soon is it called? How soon is now? Yes. The B side, I think. I think that song's awesome, and I I um, don't dislike them, and I respect them, but um, musically at least. 
um, but it was never a thing for me. I was already into, you know, I was listening to things like, you know, more into 34 elevators or the, the Velvet Underground, or I was lucky um, that I started getting into art probably when I was about 14, something like that, and being really interested in it, and particularly things like pop art. And I guess war, there was a book that came out called Popism about the Warhol 60s. Yeah. And of course, it's more than about his art, it's about his life and his world. And the, the, they talk about the Velvet Underground in there. And I remember thinking, huh, that sounds kind of interesting. And then I found the first Velvet Underground record in a little Virgin store. And Virgin, Virgin used to be a really cool little sort of they were the original indie store, really, before that mega store craziness that they, they did, which was sort of awesome at the time, before the internet, in its own way, I have to say. I mean, to walk into a Virgin mega store back then was like mind blowing. And it's like, it was like going in about 30 normal record shops all at once. It was just intense. Yes. But um, I found that first Velvet Underground album. And of course, it has, it has that awesome fucking cover. And I remember reading the sleeve notes on it. It's sort of like, oh, I wonder what the fuck's going on here. And I must have had some, some spare cash because I bought it, uh, primarily because of the sleeve. But the sleeve on records is really, really important to me. And I, I think it's like the picture on an acid tab. It so influences everything beyond it. Um, it's so anyway. I bought it and thought, ah, oh, it might not be great, but fuck it, let's see. It has an awesome sleeve, and I got it um, back to school and um, put it on, played it um, early in the morning. One, I would sometimes get up early before the school started, and smoke, and listen to music and things like that. And I remember listening to it, because you know, I have to get is it so Sunday morning the opening track? Sunday morning, right from the start, it was just like, what the fuck, this is awesome. And then of course it starts going into waiting for the man and stuff like that, and the Black Angels death song and stuff. And I was like, whoa, this is fucking awesome. I couldn't believe how uh, good the record was. And back then, it was they were hard to find Velvet Underground records. You could find that one. It, it was it was some years, I believe, before I heard. It might be three or four years before I heard the White Light, White Heat. That one was a hard fucking record to hear back then. Yes. Um, and you, you, I knew one. I only ever knew one dude ever who had an original copy of that record. It used to come across the the Banana album here and there, um, but. Yeah, so next, you can find Squeeze, funnily enough, which of course everyone doesn't want to talk about anymore, but um, that horrible Squeeze record that's called the Velvet Underground, but not really the Velvet Underground, you could find that for some reason. Polydor, whoever had that record, used to find it in places pretty cheap. Um, and then the next thing I think I found was, the, uh, was Loaded, and which is, of course, is really different to the first album. And you start to 
it took years to really see the the breadth of what the Velvet Underground did because well, well I mean I was a I was always a bootleg dude because there was always awesome stuff that you could get on bootlegs but there was so much of the Velvet Underground's best period that wasn't released till the the VU another view albums and some of that stuff had been on bootlegs so people knew about I guess I'm falling in love and um, some of those more obscure songs, but uh, things like, you know, Foggy Notion, and I mean, some of their fucking most awesome songs, nobody ever fucking heard them. No one, no one heard them until, you know, the 80s. So, uh, yes. yeah, the Velvet yes. Underground was, uh, was always, but I really loved that about music, and I, I, I preferred knowing the person who was saying if you like that you might like this than having it done by a fucking algorithm and the journey of it because it was much harder to find stuff and it was expensive to buy records i mean you know i could i could buy one record every couple of weeks i imagine that would have been the the max i could afford so it was kind of awesome i i you know, people, I'm sure it just sound like some fucking old fart banging on about it. It's interesting because it was good. Yes. I like the journey a lot. Yes. Yes. I've got, I've got a slight echo on this. Have you got two machines? We've been out of sync for a while, I think, whatever that. So when I say something, oh, it's not too bad. God, that would be too bad. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to say on, on that front, I remember listening to the Lou Reed Transformer album before getting, you know, anything by Velvet Underground. And it was one of those books, my brother had like the essential 500 or the 100 top albums to buy. And in those days, you couldn't just go and listen to something, you had to kind of gamble and buy it. And I remember the Velvet Underground album with the banana, because I was really surprised with the first track that you just mentioned, which was this beautiful acoustic kind of relaxing one before it then becomes you know, rather heavy and peculiar. And then you had Nico's vocals as well, which was like, okay, that's different. Yeah. It yeah. Was... Transform is a fucking ridiculous record as well. Ridiculous. Yes. Now when yeah. you, so going back to your kind of the musical wonderful world, that was the, you know, the, the, the path. It wasn't that wonderful. <laughs> How were you coping and kind of getting the band together and then sort of going through, because you had the first album, which was kind of on Glass Records, which was run by the, the fantastic Dave Barker. I think, well, I don't know, he seemed a nice chap. Signs of Confusion. Were you pleased with that before you followed up with the, uh, the perfect perception prescription? Uh, no, uh, happy with it. I, I don't know. I was happy with it. I guess... Mm. No, we were still, you know, those are the, you know, we were still talking about the days when, you know, uh, I mean, the dude who is a the sweet dude who, who produced that record, Bob Lamb, um, you know, he, he took what you could afford, really. I, I'm not trying to put him down in any way, but he wouldn't have been our pick. But, but for it was what we were told we could afford and that he would help us make a record. But, but these dudes, one thing I learned from, from that guy, <laughs> he, he is a really awesome dude, but the one thing he used to do that was bullshit was you could say to him, 
we don't want the hi-hat that loud, do we? Don't, we never have the hi-hat that loud. In fact, actually, Spaceman 3 never really had hi-hats, so it's a bad example. But you'd ask him something about something like that, and he would fight you on it. He would sort of argue on it. And I, I personally think that uh, no one knows better about their own music than the band. And if, that, if they want it that way, that's the fucking way it should be. And, and the process of actually having to fight battles with people to try and get things within the parameters of what you'd like it to sound like uh, was crazy. I mean, insane. I mean, I'm not, we didn't really battle, but, um, you know, there would, there would be some, you certainly couldn't touch the desk. We certainly weren't, you know, he, he had to make any adjustments. And he is a little, he had very specific ideas. He probably thought we were a total bunch of fucking waste of fuck-ups. And his Pat Fish was along with us as well. He was just steadily rolling joints the whole time. And I'm sure Bob Lamb, even though, the reason we thought he might be all right was because he'd done Signing Off by UB40, that album, which <laughs> I, I think is a cool album. I've always thought it was a cool album. Yeah. The UB40. It was UB40's finest moment, really, I have to say. And, have and to... with writing their own songs as well, so they didn't seem to do for very well. And but, how you... uh, yeah. And I, and I was going to say, how were you sort of coping with the band, dealing with, you know, being young and funky at the same time as kind of like dealing with, with record labels? Yeah, we were, you know, there was no schools for this shit. And we were still, you know, a bunch of fuck-ups, really, in our own different ways. And I mean, I love all these days. They're all awesome fuck-ups, even though I haven't always got on with them. But they're all, they're all cool, interesting characters. And it was, I don't know, I mean, it kind of felt a little bit, a lot of the time, it was like us against the world, because, you know, no one gave a shit. And a lot of our friends, um, the first show we played, which I guess like a lot of bands is mostly attended by their friends. Um, they weren't entirely complimentary about, <laughs> about our performance. Uh, um, yeah, because we sort of had an anti-performance style and I stood with my back to the audience for, well, I'd play feedback the guitar where I'd put the neck of the guitar up against the edge of the speaker so I could control it and of course you have to have your back to the audience to do that and I guess we did maybe it was a 20 could have been 30 minute it happened a piece like that and people were not very best pleased about it it was it was a really strange really strange moment <clears throat> although half of me half of me uh, uh, felt that it was there, was, there was a little air of jealousy to it, that they were a bit, they could see that, uh, I think as a band, we were, um, had something a bit different going on and that it worked. So, um, which is like the dream element for a band really, I feel. Yes, because then when you got onto your third album, which is the one that kind of hits the big time, were you, were you kind of prepared for the sort of things? <laughs> but there's the one that kind of playing with fire that definitely elevates you into a, another kind of level of kind of publicity. And well, sort of... it was the first time that people really started. I don't know about elevating us, but, um, well, I mean, yeah, it was for some reason that um, 
because it wasn't on glass. Um, Dave, Dave's a cool dude, but um, glass were, you know, you know, it wasn't. He wasn't a businessman, or uh, he was a, a music fan. He was a music lover, of course. Who else would have fucking put our records out? No one would have done it out of business sense. Yeah. And by, I guess we built up a bit of momentum, and by playing with fire, we were on a different label. Uh, fire and we got lucky sometimes the combination of your press officer and your record and zeit coming things coming together um and yeah. was it, and were you kind of excited you know <laughs> mildly excited at that point with you know the sort of the scene that had started to build up with people like my bloody valentine and silverfish and the faith healers and a lot more bands who were starting to experiment with noise. Did you feel a little bit more, there was, there was a bit more kinship around, you know, yes. at that stage? Yeah, I did. The first time I met my, my buddy Valentine, I think they were playing with the Primitives and um, it was still in their, uh, their T86 sort of shambling phase, would they call, would you call it? Sunny Sunday, yes, they smile. The shambling. And I, I didn't like them at all musically, but they were awesome people. And I can't remember exactly how or why, but we sort of kept in touch with each other. And then at some point, I think we did a show together or something. And I, I remember they had a, they, beca they became a, almost overnight, a totally different band. I went from one I really couldn't give a shit about to one that I thought was really awesome. And the, the song I remember, I felt was the pivot, was made me realize. And I thought that that song, they just, they just hit some real next level with that. It's such an awesome song. Yes, absolutely. It's such an awesome song. I'm pretty sure I said to Kevin, Is that, who's that a cover of? It was like, for them to go from Sunny Sunday Smile to You Made Me Realize was like, was, was pretty, magical mystery tour, warp factor stuff. Yeah, and how were you coping? Because obviously the band had quite an image and you must have started picking up sort of followers and fans and, you know, you know people who wanted to yeah. get in with you. Did you. How did you cope with that kind of side of it? Well, um, you know, I, 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 I don't think that musicians are anything different or fucking special to anybody else. And I always try and treat people like that sometimes people would approach you and they'd already think that you would think you were some fucking hot shit because you had your face on a fucking music paper or something and they would come up and say something that would be uh a little bit insulting or a, bit, a little bit designed to rankle you a little bit and if you can if you can bust through that and, and bite your lip and not respond in the way that they were really trying to make you respond. It would turn out these people usually like knew everything about you that ever happened and were like massive fans, yet some, somehow, because like of some fear of being rejected, they would come and sort of reject you first so you couldn't reject them or something. But um, yeah, it's, it's been good. I, you know, I, 
the bands don't get to to pick their fans, but I've never been disappointed in them. I, I always like the sort of, I mean, I think by the design of your music, you do get to pick your, you know, I feel birds of a feather flock together and, um, you know, yeah. that's the way things are. People resonate with people who look like them, think like them, act like them. That's, that's what we do. So, um, you know, some of my best friends are people who were fans who I just, rather than being snotty fucking rock star dude, I was just like, you know, normal dude with them. And turns out they're some of the greatest people I ever met and I've been friends with them for decades. And uh, so, and loads of things happened to me like that. Sometimes a dude came up to me one time at a show and went, oh, I lost my fucking wallet on the bus, I came on the bus, I lost my wallet, I got no money, got no ticket, can I get on the guest list? And I was like, sure, I'm on the guest list, dude. Uh, yes. I, I haven't got much money, but I can give you 40 quid so you can get home and all the rest of it. Don't worry about it, you ain't gonna pay me back. Just, well, this did end up playing guitar for me for a while. So it's sometimes, you know, just, just if you, if you, if you, you know, it, it's like the all you need is love thing. It sounds really trite, but if you can actually do that, and I've not always been the dude to be able to do it, but the older I get, the more I realize if you can go out there and actually have some sort of empathy with everyone, it's, it's better for you, it's better for everyone. Any negative energy anyone puts out there in any way is amplified, usually, or knocked on. Like all universal energies, they don't dissipate or go anywhere, they're just transferred. And if, if you, this is one of the big problems with one of the problems in, with the internet is that people put out this poisonous fucking energy and think that if they're having a bad fucking day, they can bang on about it. And you just get these sort of tsunamis of the shit from so many people just being negative. I think it's really blaming as well, you know, the whole blame thing. What did blame ever fix? Why, why, why do human beings do blame? This is fucking fun. insane. Just change what you do in your mindset. And, and there's no point blaming. It's insane. This is so, Peter. Because, you know, um, earlier, just a, a technical thing, because you came on the line again, and apparently we've only got, like, less than a minute. Can I just quickly send you another invite and then just kind of talk about your solo bit? Sure. Is that okay? I know, it's just um, one of the... Uh, I can... I, I'll... I'll um... Wait for yeah, the, sure. I'll send you the invite like now because this is going to just kind of finish in a sec, literally. Okay, wait a minute. Boom.